Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at Matthew's gospel today. We're in the fourth chapter, which describes the temptations uh, presented to Jesus by the devil in the wilderness after his baptism by John at the Jericho, at, at the Jordan, sorry. <clears throat> so the, the tempter came. We, we talked about who this tempter is. And so what I want to talk about a little bit now is, is that, so the in Judaism, if you call him the tempter, then you're going to say, okay, I understand who that is. He's the one whose job it is to tempt. It's the same, if you look at Job, for instance, when you look at the book of Job, well, the first thing that happens is is this, this the Satan figure has been walking to and fro in the earth, and God prompts him and says, have you considered my servant Job? There's never been a more upright man anywhere around, and so he, he begins to take issue with that idea of Job. He says, well, he's just never been tested. You've given him everything he wanted. He's had life by the tail his entire life. If, however, you take some of that away from him, he'll curse you to your face. And so God picks up that challenge. And so they see that as his job to do this thing. Um, they don't see the same thing with Genesis 3. That That's a little different. Um, but here, what we what we see is this tempter. Okay, so so they see him as doing his job. And if you speak to Jewish people for any length of time, you'll find out very quickly that this is this is a problem for them. That they look at the way we understand Satan, the devil, uh, all that as a remarkably different thing from the way they understand it. And it's true that rabbinic Judaism just sees it that way. But in the intertestamental period, the, the season between Malachi and Matthew, which is about 400 years, there's that, that's the intertestamental period. It's also known as Second Temple Judaism, the first temple having been destroyed at the uh, t- by the Babylonians. And then the second temple is built at the time of Ezra. And then um, Herod continues that work and, and makes it this... Uh, it, the splendor of the second temple was greater than the splendor of the first temple. So in that period of time, then there there's a lot of literature. And a lot of that literature finds its way into the New Testament. A lot of the thought of that intertestamental literature finds its way into the New Testament. And one of those chief ways has to do with this whole idea that I introduced to you yesterday about Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, whereas when when God separated and divided the nations, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. So in other words, he set rulers over them, angelic rulers over these places. And so that is more well understood, played out, and thought out in that intertestamental period, we also see it in Daniel, because at one point Daniel is, it cries out to the Lord, and then he's told, hey, we were delayed in coming to you and answering you because we had a battle to fight somewhere else. And, and Michael had to overcome something in order to come and send you word. So you see it even then, and you hear about this term, the watchers, and the, those are those angelic beings that have, have separated themselves from God and gone into rebellion against him. That's where we where we get information about those, that division, those, those, those who have left, the angels that have separated themselves and are in rebellion against God. That, that idea, it finds full flower in that intertestamental period. And so when Jesus comes, <clears throat> there, there's the rabbinic school 
that stays focused on Torah and understands things through that lens. But then there's this other body of literature out there that clearly influenced Judaism on the ground, let's say, and and also influences all our Gospels, influences Paul uh, in a lot of his thought, and certainly John in the book of the Revelation sees it that way as well. So all that apocalyptic kind of literature is, is based on this new understanding of Satan. And, and Jesus lays hands on that understanding and said, that's right. That's the way to understand him. He is your enemy. And that's a much stronger word than, than he is the one who, whose job it is to tempt you. No, he is looking for whom he may devour, Peter says. And so we need to understand that, yes, Way, the way we understand the Satan, the Diablo, the devil, all of that is different from Judaism, but it's not discontinuous from Judaism. It's discontinuous from rabbinic Judaism, but it's not discontinuous from Judaism generally, because there was a deepening and a different understanding during that period of time of who this Satan was. And in that same period of time comes this greater understanding of, of the reason they don't like the Gentiles is because they're worshiping false gods. And so you can't take in worship of a false god and mix it with the worship of the one true God. And so that's the real problem. So they, they have to stay separate from those things because now you're going to create an admixture that's not going to be good for Judaism. It's going to adulterate it in such a way that now we're worshiping demonic entities. They, they rightly understood that that demonic essentially just means opposed to God. And so that's exactly any God that claims allegiance over and against Yahweh is a demon. It's just as simple as that, because it denies his supremacy. And so the reason that they, they had problems with the Gentiles and thought of the Gentiles the way they did, it was partly pride, certainly, as being the chosen ones, but the other side of it is, is that, that it's a dangerous thing to mix with those people because they're ruled by demons. They worship demons. So the, that has come into play in, in every part of Judaism, even though you don't see it in official Judaism during that period of time. This intertestamental period produced books like um, the, the first book of Enoch, uh, Jubilees, Jasher, uh, the Assumption of Moses. There's a great many books that appear in that time. These are not the books of the Apocrypha. Those are different books. The, the, the Apocryphal books include the Maccabees, but they also, which is a historical thing, but that history is not considered to be, um, it, it's more hagiography, which is to say that, that it's, it's not real history in the sense that it, that it idealizes people in a way that biblical history doesn't. It points out David's flaws. It points out Moses's flaws. It points out Abraham's flaws. Maccabees doesn't do that, but then there are all these other books that are in there as well in the Apocrypha, some of them wisdom literature, some of them stories. Um, but these books that I'm talking about are not in the Apocrypha. They're in the, what's known as the Pseudepigrapha, which is a, a just those other books that had currency within Judaism at that time. And they deeply influence all of the New Testament. Every single person who writes in the New Testament is clearly familiar with that material and has incorporated some of the ideas of that material into the Gospels. 
Jesus, as I said, lays hands on and baptizes that idea, particularly about Satan, sees it in a totally different way than, than, than the average rabbinic Jew would see it. Well, I'm going to go with Jesus. So what happens is the tempter comes and says to him, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In other words, if you're really the Son of God, then you should have the power to turn these stones into bread. And, you know, that uh, John has already said that God can make children of Abraham out of these stones. So Satan's asking for a kind of a smaller miracle. Uh, but then Jesus will also say later on that, that the rocks will cry out if he tells his people as he comes into Jerusalem for Palm Sunday and the people are acclaiming him as the son of David and, and saying, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And the Pharisees want him, to, want him to tell them to cheese it and not do that because it'll upset the Romans. Jesus says, no, you know what? If I made them shut up, the rocks would cry out. So there's this, this sort of the, the ability for the personification even of inanimate objects to occur. And so when Satan poses this temptation, it's based in, well, if God can make children out of Abraham from the stones, then by golly, you can certainly make bread out of those stones if you are the Son of God. Now, Luke's gospel, when it recounts these temptations, tells us at the end of it, Satan left him for a more opportune time. And he did it in more opportune ways. He put those temptations in the mouths of human beings, disciples in one case, but then also in, in people always asking him to prove himself. If you're the Son of God, then, then surely you can do this. If you're the Son of God, you can surely do that, even at the cross. If you're truly the Son of God, then come down. Prove to us. You are who you say you are. It's presuming upon the relationship, and it's, it's asking Jesus to do something that's practical, but the Father didn't ask him to do it. it it's it, The wrong reason is going on here. Now, it could, did it really hurt? I mean, it's just Jesus and Satan in the wilderness. If Jesus turns this these stones into bread, is that a big deal? I mean, he's hungry. He's been 40 days without food. It, is, is it really wrong as a libertarian, right? I mean, no harm, no foul. Nobody saw it. Nobody knew it. Nobody knew anything about it. Didn't harm anything. But it does. Because that, it goes back to the whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil thing. Jesus is only going to do what he hears the Father tell him to do and what he sees the Father doing himself. And so here, if the reason is to prove that you're the Son of God, and this is, again, in my mind, it fits in with the idea of Jesus being willing to risk other people's opinion of him by being baptized by John at the Jordan. Right? He, he's, he's not there pleading and saying, hey, I'm just doing this because it's going to fulfill all righteousness. That's a private conversation between him and John. And it's to encourage John to do what needs to be done. In, order, in other words, I have something to do in order to fulfill all righteousness, but you have a part to play as well, and you've got to play that part. You've got to do that. And so he does. But at the same time, it risks the idea that, wait a minute, he's not only identifying with sinners, he's identifying with Gentiles. Is he a sinner? Because those are the only people who need to be baptized, those people and those people who are converting to Judaism. And so I see this in, in very much the same way, in that 
that Jesus can can say, uh, you know, if, if you're asking me to prove that I'm the Son of God by doing what you propose, then then we're already starting in the wrong place because I don't have anything to prove to you. I don't have anything to prove to me. I know who I am. And, and that's the temptation, right, is to doubt who he is and say, well, if I can do this, and, and he knows he can do it. Satan knows that Jesus has the ability to do this. So, so he just says, hey, if you're hungry, then, then do this. It seems like a kind of a weak first thing, but, but it's subtle. It's asking him to do something prompted by a desire to prove himself. And, and that's the problem. It's the same kind of thing that happens at the wedding in Cana and Galilee when Mary comes and says, hey, they're about to run out of wine. And Jesus looks at her and says, you know, woman, what is that to me? My time hasn't come. And then he does afterwards. And the same in John 5, when um, everybody's going to Jerusalem for the festival, Jesus stays back in Galilee and his brothers say to him, hey, why are you here? Anybody who wants to be somebody goes up to the festival. And Jesus says, my time hasn't come. For you, any time is okay. And so he's not moving in response to his mother or to his brothers. He's moving in response to the Father, telling him what to do. But he has those, those are the same temptation to act in a way that, that wouldn't create any harm in the world. But... Jesus is um, completely submitted to the will of the Father, and he's not going to move and do this thing unless God tells him to do it. And he can see through this one, if you're the Son of God, he can see through that to say, ah, bad temptation, I see where you're going with this. You're trying to get me to prove something, and I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anything to prove to you, and I don't have anything to prove to me. While I might be hungry, I trust the Father to provide any way he wants. If he wants me to do that, then, then he'll move me to do that. But I'm not doing it because you kind of challenged me in this way. So Jesus' response is, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we see that same idea in, in Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. Remember what happens there is they come there in the heat of the day, and the disciples say, we need to get some food. And so they go off to get the food. Jesus stays there. The woman comes and has this uh, beautiful and wonderful encounter with him. And at the end of that, the disciples, when they come back, they ask him about eating. And, and he says, my, my food is to do the will of God. And, and their response is basically, Did somebody brought him something to eat, I guess. I don't really know. I don't understand that. But but if you've ever been in a situation where God is using you, then time seems to stand still and everything seems to go away. And and even hunger. I mean, I've certainly been in, in situations in, in ministry where um, for extended periods of time, I don't mean days at a time, but I mean, like, you know, when you're in a hospital, when you're ministering to people, when you're doing things, um, and, and you're very actively engaged and focused on the work that's in front of you, then then hunger and all that stuff just goes by the wayside. You're, you're not even aware of those things. And so Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when he does, he's quoting Scripture, right? He's quoting from um, Deuteronomy 8 
And Deuteronomy 8 is an important chapter, and it's important in context here, too, because that context of Deuteronomy 8 is, is, is Moses is very suspicious. He's very cynical about the people. And his concern is that when they come into the land and when they, when they experience the prosperity that's in the land, the prosperity that God's promised, therefore God will be faithful and he'll give them that prosperity. What Moses says is, I know what's going to happen when you do that. When you get in the land and you begin to experience that prosperity, what's going to happen there is, is that you're going to um, forget the Lord your God. And you're going to say, look what my strong arm and all this has accomplished for me. And that's exactly the context is you shall remember the whole, he explained to him how to live in the midst of prosperity. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, and in Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, fasting, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that a man doesn't live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so what he was saying was, is they took away those pleasures of life, those things that we take for granted every single day of our lives. He took those away and gave you a substitute to eat during that period of time so that you might know that you don't live by bread alone. You can't because all you've got is the manna. And so you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, and it, what, it, what it's speaking of is that symbiotic relationship with the Father that knows that all things will be provided by him in due season. And so Jesus is appealing back to that, to say, look, I've been in the wilderness not 40 years, but 40 days, and, and I'm lifted in that by the presence of God, and that's far more important than food itself. He knows what I need, and he knows when I need it, and he will provide when the time comes, and I'm not going to presume on that relationship and on my identity to do those things for myself. He's laying it aside, laying that equality with God, not counting it as something to be grasped, as Paul says in Philippians 2. He lays all that aside and says, no, 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 I'm not going to respond to you in that way. I'm not going to presume on my sonship. I'm confident in who I am. I'm confident I could do these things, but it would be wrong because the Father didn't tell me to do it. And so it would only be to prove something to you. It would only be for a, a, a point of self-glorification so that you would recognize who I am. And that's not the sign or one of the signs the Father has given for me to prove that. If, if we could learn to worry less about ourselves and more about God's glory, then we would have the mind of Christ and show that in our lives and in all that we do. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.